Here they come, your Camarda wealth leaders, slashing taxes, dominating risks, relentlessly pursuing profits, protecting your assets, and keeping you in stitches while leading to greater riches. Your Camarda wealth leaders with Johnny Hotstocks, Camarda, Rob Bullmoose Shevlin, also known as a financial anesthesiologist, you'll see why, and me, Jeff, I want to be a Dr. Camarda. You're listening to the Camarda Wealth Leaders on WER, Camarda Wealth Education Radio. Let's face it, wealth matters to living a longer, better life for you and your family. Our goal is to painlessly educate you with uncommonly shrewd advice to help grow and protect your wealth. And while we aim to keep you laughing all the way to the bank, never imagine we're not dead serious about money. Folks, welcome back to yet another edition of Camarda's Wealth Education Radio. We have a very exciting and useful show for you today. And would first like to introduce, in addition, one of our um, executive vice, vice presidents, Sonia Elia. Sonia, would you go ahead and chime in for the folks, please? Hello, everybody. And, of course, a little bit louder, Sonia. You want to get that VUs up to about negative 12. Hello. Are you speaking? Of course, we have Rob Bullmoo-Shevlin with us and Johnny Hotstocks Tomarda. So today, the uh, emphasis is going to be on real estate investment, how to invest not in real estate uh, um, investment trusts and securities and things in the stock market, but physical real estate right uh, here in Jacksonville and other cities um, that, that you rent out and, and uh, um, in order to profit, uh, get cash flow, and get some tax advantages, hopefully. So we'll be talking about uh, real estate investment primarily. We're also going to be learning uh, some interesting things about the, the evolving uh, um, body of work in retirement um, and some of the, the new academic stuff. Sonia is uh, an apt uh, pupil of that and, and taking a new designation. And then, of course, we'll talk about our, our stock uh, forecasts and, uh, um, and some of our favorite um, securities and portfolios. So let's begin by talking about real estate. Rob, are you there, Rob? I am here. Oh, boy, oh, boy, yes, you are. And uh, you, I think, don't, didn't you have your master's, your MBA from, uh, from Gainesville, uh, from the host school, I think, in real estate? Is that what you studied? I got my MBA with a concentration in real estate and finance. All right, so tell us a little bit about the underpinnings. Why particularly would investors, and we're an investment advisor, our clients overwhelmingly invest, uh, have us invest in securities portfolios for them. Um, we have uh, a lot of clients that we also counsel to have uh, investment areas in, in physical real estate for a lot of reasons. Tell us why an investor or a family or a business owner might want to use real estate as an investment vehicle. Well, I think what the first thing I would look at is diversification. Uh, you, there are all different kinds of real estate that one can invest in, from single-family homes to duplexes and small investment residential properties. Uh, some people like to buy land or develop lots and sell them off. Uh, I've known a number of people over the years that have invested in manufactured housing or mobile home parks. Um, for those people who don't want to be as hands-on, they invest in real estate through securities called uh, real estate investment trusts. There are both publicly traded real estate trusts that we include in our portfolios, and then there are some non-publicly traded, which uh, I think are a bit dangerous at times. Well, let's uh, from. let's see if we can get you know just focus on physical real estate. For instance, I have a. Did I tell you a quick story? I became enchanted with the real estate. I bought my first uh, piece of investment property probably circa 1982 in Rochester. Uh, New York, and uh, I think myself and my partner paid something like eleven thousand dollars for it, and we flipped that sucker for forty thousand dollars six months in a day. That was a long-term capital gains holding period back then, um, the, to make a very really easy thirty thousand dollars profit. We just bought it right, um, and I think that that really is the key uh, to uh, to successful real estate is getting in at the right price, not necessarily the right property and location. Those things are all important, but the key to profit is paying less than it's worth or less than it will be worth. Do you agree? Absolutely. If you, if you know what your potential gain is going in, you have a chance to make a lot of you know, profit doing that. And if you don't do that, uh, you could do what I did on the first house I bought. I bought my first condo here at $60,000, 
in a, in a complex that had a lot of investor-owned units, and then the tax reform hit. It changed the economics for real estate investors, and 23 units were foreclosed on by a defunct bank who auctioned them off for a third on the dollar. Now, the good Jay, part, well, you pay too much, right? I paid, I paid too much, and if I could have bought some more units at a third of what I bought them for, that would have been the way to go. It took me 16 years to get my price 16 back. years? My goodness. Well, I wish I had a massive snoring noise for that. Are you finally, uh, are you finally hold, Mr. Rip Man Moose? Oh, yeah, we got hold on that finally, but it was quite a learning experience. All right, so anyway, let's get back to um, the to opportunities for investment in real estate uh, in Jacksonville and, and, and other Florida cities because they have been flagged still by the Wall Street Journal and others as being very attractive markets for real estate investors because the, the values are quite low relative to market rents, right? right? In the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of what's called private equity or institutional money coming into Jacksonville and buying up quite a number of... No, hedge funds. I mean, there are hedge funds are stalking the, the swamps and, and the streets of Jacksonville. And it, it, quite a few, actually. It's very difficult not to trip over them and, and competing for properties. And have really scarped up, you know, a lot of the, um, the, the really cheap stuff, but also overpaid a lot. You know, I Absolutely. remember one, uh, that hard money lender uh, that we talked to last year saying that they got guys, you know, 30-year-old MBAs up in New York City making property purchase decisions just by looking at the numbers, and you really shouldn't buy real estate that way. No, you need to go out and look at it, inspect it, get a feeling for the, the neighborhood, what the rents are, and what the direction of the, um, the trajectory of the, 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 the neighborhood is going to be. So I personally prefer, there's a lot of ways to invest in real estate. I personally prefer single-family houses. I know that. I got my start by buying a lot of VA repos in Jacksonville back in the 90s where uh, you can get houses pretty cheap, and the federal government would basically guarantee a loan to investors with just $500 down. Those days are long gone. You know, it really is very difficult for an investor to get uh, financing on attractive terms in this environment for a lot of reasons that we won't go into today. Um, but uh, nonetheless, so it really is a cash market. You, know, you really can't, you need to buy for cash um, or to have the seller take back a mortgage or something. Uh, but still, if you can get the house cheap enough, for instance, uh, let's do some quick math. If we have a, if we buy a house for $50,000 and we're able to rent that house out for $1,000 a month, that's twelve grand, right? Yep. Now, obviously, we're not going to have it rented every month and we're going to have expenses and repairs and taxes and so forth. So if we just, to, to make the numbers easy, take 20% off the top, we're $2,000 off the top, rather. So we have $10,000 in net rent. We paid $50,000 for the house. What's the return, Moosey? You got a 20% cash-on-cash return, which is not bad for a cash-on-cash Which is incredibly attractive. Now, obviously, we made the numbers easy. Um, but the, the, remember, that's just the cash flow. That's the cash-on-cash cash return. There are other, what are the other sources of return from the real estate? Well, you're going to get... Oh, studious if, if, if you made the right buying decision up front, you're going to get uh, appreciation in the property, natural appreciation, as well as the built-in, if you bought it right, you're going to get some tax benefits, you're going to get some depreciation and interest write-off, so when you look at your total picture, your rate of return is, it should definitely be above the 20% by the time you sell it. Yeah, so let's kind of, to, you know, to, the, so to summarize those, um, they're, the interest that you pay for borrow money and the depreciation regardless over, I think, uh, the 30 years, 29 and a half years for residential real estate, but you can... You, I think that's right, yeah. Okay. You might want to look it up. But it's around 30 years, and, and commercial's around 40 years. The, uh, um, so you take one-thirtieth of the, uh, your tax basis, pretty much what you paid for the house plus any money you sunk into it, and you get that to deduct that off your taxes. So if we just to, to make it simple, if we had a $60,000 house, one-thirtieth of that is $2,000 a year. Is that right? Okay. So it's a $2,000 additional tax deduction plus any other expenses. You know, so you have some tax benefits there. And then also... 
Um, real estate is, over the long term, not every year, and there are ups and downs like any other investment, but over the long term um, has been a pretty uh, safely appreciating asset. Yes. So even if you paid market value at 50 and you hold it for a while, it's, it's almost, I don't say almost certainly, but it's extremely likely to go up in value over the long term. That's correct. And then getting back to your point about buying it right, you know, I would buy that house for 50 if it was worth 80. I wouldn't buy it if it was worth 50 or 60. Right. I got to get enough of a. You don't want to make the same mistake I did. I bought it from a developer and I couldn't really negotiate a discount. It wasn't a motivated seller. And I wish I had a, you know, a sound bite of, uh, of a moose weeping or something, but I don't. <laughs> so, how, about that one, how about one with a cougar on his back? <laughs> how about? paint a picture? Huh? That does paint a picture. I'm not sure what picture, how relevant it is, but thank you I'm for uh, thank you for speaking up, Jenny. A little break in the inaction. You know, you mean a the four legged cougar? I trust. Absolutely. Anybody you got any cougar stock in our moose or two legged moose here? We won't go there. So the uh, um, gee whiz, where were we? So that's um, the, if you buy the house for less than it's worth, um, you have some pretty much built in profit. Right, and, and particularly because you, there are so many motivated sellers or distressed situations or financial institutions that. They want to get the real estate off their books, and they're not always looking to maximize the value. They don't want to pay the holding cost to run it, and they don't necessarily have, you know, the teams to, to manage this, especially if it's real estate that's far away from where they're based. All right, so as we approach the end of this uh, first planning point segment, and uh, how do you find properties? Uh, you can go out and beat the bushes. They're not in a whole lot that advertise in the paper anymore. You can troll neighborhoods and, and look for for sale by owners. Uh, you can use a real estate broker, and full disclosure, we are a real estate broker and very, very familiar uh, with investment properties, not just finding them um, and, and putting deals together, but also managing them. We have a portfolio of, uh, of Camarone properties. It's probably in the 30s in terms of number of uh, individual properties plus commercial. Um, so there are a lot of ways to find that. And, and, on, and the final note that I'll have in this segment is, you know, we buy rental properties. We think you should buy rental properties the way we buy Stocks. We look to buy companies or assets, whether they're companies, shares of stock, or houses, or what have you, for less than they are worth. Um, and a very good rule of thumb in the residential rental market is what your cash-on-cash cash return is. I will not buy a house unless I can get at least 12% cash-on-cash cash return. And I like the house, and it looks like it's attractively priced you know, relative to the comps in the neighborhood and so forth. You know, that's a pretty darn good rate of return when you realize that it's uh, tax-advantaged, and there are other built-in um, uh, profit um, for appreciation and, and so forth. Uh, the other downside, though, that we haven't mentioned and we need to before we move on, is that the, uh, you have to manage it. It's not really a strictly passive investment like investing in one of our portfolios. You've got to collect the rent. You've got to fix the roof. You've got to be engaged and aware. Um, otherwise, it can really go to Hades in a handbasket pretty quick. Got a quick story on that, Moose, before we close the segment? Well, I, I know that uh, in the past I've been involved in, in some real estate ventures and family has and you know you all right well thanks for that story, <laughs> the is quick. oh i apologize i think come the biggest on. thing is the, is the quality the quality Where of the tenants up. you're putting them to sleep come on the quality of the tenants you're able to attract will make a big difference in the profitability of your investment you really got to do your homework and due diligence yeah. on the people you rent to good point you know tenant underwriting is critically important and even if it's a 700 dollars house they don't have to these have to be rich people you're renting to they just need to be quality people that are going to fulfill their obligations not destroy the property right. and pay the rent on time all right, folks, that's, uh, that's the end of our Plenty Point segments. We'll be back uh, after the break. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about uh, some of the innovations in retirement planning, academic research that Sonia's going to share with us. We have our portfolio of the week. We have our stock of the week. We have the Howler, which is the one that the stock that we think Johnny Hot Stocks is actually pretty cool on and uh, cautions uh, against those of you who may be invested in it that there uh, will be some headwinds ahead and, uh, and lots more. Stay with us. Uh, you're here right here on Camarda. Um, Wealth Education Radio. See you in a second, folks.
Stand by. You're listening to the Camarda Wealth Leaders on WER Wealth Education Radio. The show is previously recorded. For private or on-air questions, to request free white papers or other educational materials, or to schedule a complimentary no-obligation consultation about today's or any other wealth matters, call us at 888-CAMARDA. Write it down now, 888-CAMARDA. That's C-A-M-A-R-D-A, Charlie, Alpha, Mike, Alpha, Romeo, Delta, Alpha, 888-CAMARDA. Call it now and keep it handy for wealth emergencies. All right, folks, you're back with the Camarda Wealth Leaders right here at Camarda's Wealth Education Radio. You have uh, Jeff, I want to be a Dr. Camarda, Rob Bullmoose-Shevlin, and uh, Sonia the U. Elia. We'll have to come up with a better handle for you, dear Sonia, and uh, Johnny Hotstocks, Camarda. So let's talk about some of the innovations in uh, retirement planning and research that you have been studying, dear Sonia. What, uh, what uh, is on your mind? Was it reverse mortgages and Social Security and how that can play out to increase income for people? That's exactly what it is. We hear the word reverse mortgage, and um, I think bad thoughts come to mind. There's a a lot of um, misunderstanding or um, a lack of familiarity with the product, Um, and so we kind of see it as one of those bad things out there. So let's kind of frame reverse mortgage. A lot of people, I think, are familiar with the concept. Basically, you borrow money. You you have to be a certain age, retirement age. You borrow money from a bank, right? You can use that money for anything you want, for income. You can invest it with us. You can go out and buy boats with it. You can buy a vacation property, whatever you want. And you do not have to repay it during your lifetime. These are government-guaranteed products, right? right. And when the political and, and social, social economic um, pros and cons are, you know, in my mind, dubious. But nonetheless, it's out there, and it's something that clients and, and listeners can take advantage of. So if I'm a retired person, um, and certainly I'm not that age, but I'm not going to retire, um, and I, I wanted to borrow money against my house, what maybe could I do? What are some of the strategies I could do with that? Again, remember, I don't have to pay it back. I don't have to make payments. It really will be, is intended to be repaid at my death when my heirs sell a house or the government sells a house, right? The only exception is if you ended up having to move out of the house, let's say, for long-term care needs for more than a year. Let's not complicate things, okay? Just the vanilla story today, Robbie. Over to you, embraceable you. Thank you. Um, so the basics of the concept is um, if at 62 or 65, whatever the magic number is, you're ready to retire, um, kind of thinking outside of the box of regular retirement income, pensions from your company, your IRAs, your 401ks, um, things like that, you can do a bridge, basically. So using the equity that you have in your home for a very short period of time to be able to um, let your Social Security benefit increase. So let's say that you decide to retire at 64, um, but at that point, um, you're not ready to collect the Social Security, and you would really like to let that continue to grow until you're 66 or 70. So for a short time, you use the equity in your home um, to pay the monthly bills um, to sustain your lifestyle until you um, are ready to collect your Social Security. And then, of course, there's the delay in having to pay that money back. Okay. Any, uh, any other additional comments or questions for Sonia about that? Well, the advantage that I, I see is that if you were to take your money at 62, you're going to take a, a haircut compared to what you would take at the normal uh, retirement age. And if you have the ability on Social Security, on, on Social Security and if, in fact, you wanted to defer it even longer to age 70, the maximum age, that your payment will grow by 8% a year plus an inflation adjustment. So when you run the numbers, uh, it might be an attractive option to use the reverse mortgage to provide you the cash flow and get a greater return on your Social Security, especially if you think you're going to live a long time. Yeah, and see, the, the way I see these things, it's almost like free money. You have the opportunity to borrow historical low interest rates, lock in a very, very low cost that you really don't ever have to repay. You know, so if the asset is, if the, it, it lets people unlock the value in their home, 
in order to help increase the level of, uh, of retirement lifestyle and enjoyments. So unless it's really important to leave that house to the kids, and there's other assets typically you can leave to the kids, like maybe the stock portfolio you invest in with the proceeds from the, the reverse mortgage, unless that you know that leaving that specific asset to the kids is important, I don't see any downside. Worst case is at the end of um, at the end of the rainbow, you don't pay it off. The government see the government's guaranteed payment to the bank. You know, so you're really offloading a lot, or you're offloading depreciation arrest to the government. They've got the interest rate risk. I mean, I, think, I don't really think this is good for the American taxpayer, but it is what it is, and I think that clients and, and, and folks should consider taking advantage of it. It's a way to really leverage a debt asset to produce more income, to invest, you know, at higher rates of return instruments than what you have to pay on the probably deductible mortgage interest. Is it deductible, Rob? Uh, no, because you're not paying the current. That's right. Current Even the accrued amount. accrued. All right. Um, so I think there's a lot of advantage to that. What do you think, Jonathan? Is this something that I know we haven't, you know, re- reverse mortgages have had a really bad name for a long time. I have only just recently begun to, to warm up to them. They have been very expensive, difficult to get, high commissions, bad deals for consumers. But I think they are evolving to the point where they are very, very attractive products. And if you have a client in Boynton Beach or Lauderdale or Naples, Jonathan, that's got, you know, three hundred, rather $3 million house, if they're able to borrow zero limit on reverse mortgages? In the federal government program, there is. It's uh, $625,000. All right. So if you're able to get you know, $600,000, a million dollars out and free that up and invest it in something that could appreciate more rapidly or throw off more income they can spend every month, is that something that would be appealable to some of those folks? I think so. I think this is just another one of those tools in the toolbox, I think, with the augmented view of Social Security and when to take income. So I think that this looks like a pretty useful tool. Uh, and as Sonia alluded to, the fact that it could be a little scary based upon the actual uh, you know, sticker price, if you will. But when you actually peel the layers, it actually looks like a pretty useful tool uh, to essentially uh, be creative and making sure your income lasts as long as possible. Good, good. Excellent. So let's say uh, any, any other comments on this? Because we need to move on to some of the, uh, the investment uh, topics that we have on today's agenda. Uh, any other closing comments? Um, I would just say that it's definitely something that you want to keep in mind as you start your retirement planning. Um, don't take it off the table right away, but it's definitely important to do a complete inventory of all of your assets, all of your accounts, to come up with the best plan for you. Excellent. All right, so uh, moving on to uh, well, that'd be interesting, but I'm going to play that. Moving on to uh, to looking if you at money uh, to the IRS. They can be hey, where do you get from? They the yes, they can. They're horrible. I had this ad for you know for tax strategy uh, get here on the radio. Actually, that was, that was completely uh, completely random and unplanned for folks. But uh, it, it's an interesting um, and, and useful concept. Is that you know, a lot of folks don't appreciate how much, and we'll, we'll talk about income tax in a future segment. How much uh, flexibility and creativity there is, and how taxes are paid, and depending on how things are strategized and arranged. There's huge opportunity for significant tax reduction. So, uh, um, uh, but anyway, back to stocks. To the portfolio of the week uh, that we're going to talk about is uh, Camarda's uh, ISIS, and that stands, by the way, for Integrated Strategic Investment System. We had a client advisory board meeting last night, and the overwhelming consensus was don't change the name in the, the face of, uh, of these animals that are also using it. So ISIS stands for Integrated Strategic Investment System, and we'll keep that name. But it's a, a modern portfolio theory-based asset allocation investment uh, methodology. And just to kind of summarize what that is, and this won a Nobel Prize in economics in 1990 after some half century in research, but the premise is that if you have a little piece of investment in a lot of different types of markets, large uh, large cap U.S. stocks, um, emerging markets in Korea and South America, um, different kinds of um, the, you know, large cap versus growth stock 
uh, just different types of investments that tend to move in different cycles, you should be able to smooth out some of the volatility and make more money in the long run while reducing risk at the same time. Under the premise, not everything will go down together. Um, and that uh, sort of some markets are doing extremely well, like non-U.S. stocks have done so well you know, early this year, um, especially bumped by uh, the recent uh, moves by uh, uh, the European uh, um, version of the Fed, um, <clears throat> that you'll have a piece of appreciation in, uh, in some markets uh, rather than languishing maybe um, if, if all in U.S. large cap stocks uh, that maybe don't do well for a stretch as maybe coming up uh, um, not too far from now, I think. So capital appreciation is an asset allocated style and we don't talk about specific performance very often, and you should listen to the extensive disclaimer at the end of the show uh, in order to put this in context. Um, but has got you know, what we think is, um, is, is a very uh, respectable track record. For instance, if you had put a million dollars in a market, it could be 100000 it could be $10 million, uh, but just to use uh, an easy round number, a million dollars in a market January of 2000, the beginning of what became the worst bear market since the Great Depression, as of September 30th of last year, we haven't got the 1231 numbers, as of September 30th of 2014, if you did as well as the S&P 500, and many investors and many advisors did not do that well, but if you did as well as the S&P 500, that million would have grown to be a little bit more than 1.5 million, up about 50% over some 14 years' time. Capital appreciation, our portfolio, actually delivered to clients um, significantly more profit on the end value after all fees and expenses was pushing $1.8 million, um, or almost through about a quarter million dollars more, uh, give or take. So we're very proud of that performance over the long term, and uh, it's uh, not the only investment style that we run, but something that is, uh, um, is typically um, um, uh, appreciated by clients for its diversity. Sonia, you uh, work a lot with these portfolios. Tell me what, how do clients view the diversification of using mutual funds and ETFs in different market sectors? Um. Well, you know, obviously when one sector is doing better than the other, there's the question of why don't we have more there, which has to be addressed. But overall, um, they like the idea and understand the idea of um, having, having diversity and having representation kind of across the board. Um, you know, there's cases where one, one um, index is doing extremely well, and it'd be great to say we're going to outperform that index every, um, every month, every quarter. Um, but when it comes right down to it, when that index turns around and the folks that have invested heavily in that index are going through the floor, mm -hmm. our clients are not seeing that. Um, so you want to have, you have a piece of the, yeah. the, the markets that may be doing exceptionally well vis-a-vis right. -vis one that, that isn't. Exactly. So it depends on the year, but long term it has been a very viable strategy for us. And, uh, and again, it did win a Nobel Prize in economics. It's, it's well regarded academically. And these are what I like to refer to as pie chart portfolios. I mean, every advisor has one. There's a colorful pie chart where, you know, we have so much natural resource, so much small cap growth stocks and so forth. But, you know, it's easy to put a pie chart together, uh, but maybe more difficult is having the pieces assembled in such a way uh, that you know, the track, certainly track records are important. Um, and then one last aside on this before we move on, one of the, another, that's the most aggressive variance of ISIS. The most conservative is one we call integrated income. A couple of years ago, we became concerned about, uh, um, the, about interest rate increases and, and the bond market nearing the top of a 30-year cycle. So we began shifting from so-called fixed income to what I call uh, traditional income investments, uh, um, real estate investment trusts, uh, which we're going to talk a little bit about in a second when we talk about the stock of the week, and uh, preferred stocks and things that uh, still pay nice income but are um, somewhat more immune to interest rate increases, won't go down 
um, as much as bonds, hopefully, when, uh, when interest rates or if interest rates do go up. Um, and that portfolio has you really been, I'm very happy with the performance. we have any specific numbers? I think it was like net of fees for 2014, something like 8%, is that right? Right at 8%. Yeah. Yes. Which is, you know, awfully, awfully good, given that it's a quite conservative strategy. Anyway, that's enough of, uh, that's enough horn tooting for us. Um, and folks, remember that we are completely available to you uh, for advice on real estate or taxes or reverse mortgages, retirements, investments, whatever. Give us a call at 888-CAMARDA. That's 888-CAMARDA. Stay with us uh, over the break. We'll be back in uh, just about 60 seconds uh, with yet uh, another exciting segment focusing on the stock of the week. And, of course, the howl. Who's, who's howling this week, John? You want to give us a preview? Uh, yeah, well, I won't give you the name, but I'll give you a hint. It's, uh, it's a pretty big stock, and it's uh, been looked upon as conservative for a while. Uh-oh. Conservative and now maybe, maybe uh, penetrating the red fog of risk? Uh, perhaps. All right. Stay That's with it. us. Stay with your Camargo Wealth Leaders. We'll be back in uh, just about a minute. Stand by, folks.